true God, true man, correct? True God, true man. We learn that from the pages of the Bible. If you're Lutheran, you'll learn it in the catechism. True God, true man. Hebrews 2.17 Jesus had to be made like his brothers in all ways in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Since Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help us when we are tempted. True God, true man. He was 4.15. We do not have a high priest in heaven who cannot sympathize with the feeling of our weakness when we struggle with the will of God. We have a high priest who has been tempted in all ways, even as we have, yet without sin. There is an irony in the Bible pertaining to Jesus. It is connected with the fact that he is true God and true man. John eleven twenty five. he's standing in front of Martha, whose brother Lazarus died four days earlier. And as he stands in front of a very disturbed Martha, he says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he actually said, do you believe what I just said? And she said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Twenty minutes later, he is standing by the graveside of Lazarus. And he has just declared his power to raise people from the dead. Shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. Twenty minutes after he gives this, this uh, enormous dissertation pertaining to his power to raise people from the dead. Don't be angry. Don't be sad. Twenty minutes later, he is weeping at the graveside of Lazarus. And shortly thereafter, he is bringing Lazarus back to life. Come forth, Lazarus. There is an irony pertaining to Jesus. It is connected with him being true God and true man. Did he not say in the Gospel of Matthew, the sixth chapter, didn't he say, seek ye first the face of God, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. God is with you today. Next week is Transfiguration Sunday. Guess what's happening? Jesus is worrying about tomorrow. Jesus is worrying about what something's going to happen uh, six months later, namely his climbing that cross. Jesus is already beginning to feel what is going to bring him to his knees, excuse me, not to his knees, but face down in the dirt of the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood and saying to his Father, if there is some other way, my soul is sorrowful unto death, if there is some other way to do this, mankind's salvation, if there is some other way, get the blueprints out and let's figure out some other way. And then those uh, enormous words, never to be forgotten in the Bible. Not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Transfiguration Sunday begins six days earlier. Jesus' ministry on this earth was three and a half years. First three years of his ministry, very, very public. Spent 95% of his time healing people. Why else are the crowds around him? And why else did he do the miracles? 
John 20, 30, 31, he did the miracles to draw the crowds. He did the miracles to draw the crowds. He also did the miracles because of his great compassion. And when the crowds had gathered, then he would preach the kingdom of God. But you better believe they wouldn't have come 15, 20,000 strong. They wouldn't have come to listen to a man preach. They came because of his miracles. For three years, public ministry, healing all these people, very little time to teach his disciples. But something comes over him six months before the cross. It's like God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, says to him, It is time now, Jesus. It is time now, Jesus. It is time to begin to prepare for the cross. And he then changes the mode and the means of his ministry. You see, for the next six months, there are not as many miracles by far, and there are many more teaching opportunities with his disciples. He has to prepare them for what is to come. All they've seen is the cheers and the adulation and the enormous power that has come forth from Jesus. But now it's time to prepare them for what is to happen in six months. They go to Caesarea Philippi. Why? Because it's a resort area where Jesus can relax, become quiet, gather his disciples around him, and begin to teach. He doesn't know where they're at. He doesn't know what means that he will have to use in order to teach them. And in order to find out where his disciples are at, he asks them this question for the first time. As they're walking, he says, by the way, gentlemen, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, Jesus, we've been listening to people talk, and and you've heard them talking. Some think you're John the Baptist risen from the dead, and some think you're Elijah risen from the dead, and some think you're Jeremiah, and some think you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked this question. He said, what about you guys? Been with me for three years. Who do you believe I am? And I'm sure that Jesus held his breath as he was waiting for their answer. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said this. I, namely we, because we've been talking about it. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the heart of Jesus leapt with joy, and angels in heaven rejoiced. John 20, 30, 31, Jesus did many other miracles not recorded. These are recorded, said that you, my twelve disciples, might believe that I'm the Son of God. These are recorded so that everyone who sees one of my miracles would believe that I am the Son of God. Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. If Simon Peter had said, Hey man, we agree with the people. We think you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Then Jesus would have had to spend a great deal of time going through 385 prophecies in the Old Testament that were messianic in nature. He would have had to spend all that time teaching them about who he was and why he would come. But they already knew Jesus then says to them in verse 21, From that time on, from that time when he asked them that question, 
From that time on, until his death on the cross, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside privately and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Not with the power you have. Not with the power of even seeing you raise people from the dead. Not with the power you have, Jesus. This will never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Simon Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're whispering to me, Satan, like you did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve knew the will of God, but you talked them out of doing the will of God. That's what you're doing to me now, Satan, in the face of Simon Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the will of God. You have in mind the will of men. Sermon is entitled, How to Know God's Will. You do not have in mind the will of God. You have in mind the will of men. When he begins his ministry, here comes Satan. Very first temptation, Lord, God has given you all this power. Look at these stones, turn them into bread. Jesus said, the will of God is that man does not live by bread alone, because bread will only keep him alive for 60 years or 70 or 80 years, and then they're going to die. The will of God is not that men eat bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan said to Jesus, use your power, jump down off the temple, you'll have an instant 20,000 people following you if you do that trick. Jesus, in essence, said to him, my purpose, my will, uh, following God's will, is not to draw great crowds to see me do miracles or tricks. My purpose is to bring forth his kingdom. And Satan, last shot, he said, bow down, worship me, I'll give you everything uh, that your eyes can see. I'll give you all power. And Jesus said, this is the will of God that uh, you worship him, And you serve his will only. You serve his will only. There was a time when Jesus fed 10,000 people on that hillside with five loaves and two fish. And you look at the Gospel of John, it says the people came and they wanted to force him to become their king. And Jesus, feeling Satan's presence on the mountainside, He dispersed the people quickly, sent his disciples out into the boat to get away from this place where Satan had invaded. The will of God. There are two great branching areas. Number one, do we understand his will for our life? Do we understand that his will is that we serve others? Whether you look at the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon where he said, blessed are those who show mercy, blessed are those who seek after God's righteousness, blessed are over those who mourn over other people's suffering, blessed are those who look outward. That is the will of God. And all throughout his ministry, he's doing the will of God. Anyone who comes to him that's suffering, he helps them, be they Jew or Gentile. 
And at the very end of his ministry, parable of the sheep and the goats, did you feed the hungry? Did you give drink to the thirsty? Did you visit the naked? Did you visit those in prison? It was at a wedding reception last night. And here God brings a gentleman over to our table, Connie and I, and a lady, never met him before, just started talking. He's a doctor, born in Barbados, seeing some of the greatest poverty on this earth. And as a young boy, looking at all this poverty, realizing that God had given him a rather brilliant mind, he said, my purpose is to serve the will of God, and I shall do so by helping the poorest people on this earth. Built a hospital down there in Barbados for them. And his wife, she was a teacher for a number of years, a high school teacher, and she saw the students come in, and, and so many of them were abused physically and mentally, emotionally, sexually. They were abused. And she said, my heart would break so often in the course of the year as I saw these students come in and I could do so very little for them. And so she stopped teaching and she started an organization down in Florida which has one central focus, children and youth who are abused. The counselors are there, the therapists are there, the doctors are there, the nurses are there. She said, my purpose on this earth is to serve the will of God. I said, that's what I'm talking about tomorrow. So thank you for an illustration. My purpose on this earth is to serve the will of God. God bless those two. You have to understand that God does have a definite purpose and will for your life. You're not praying to a God who said, I'm going to create you, I'm going to disappear for 80 years, and then when you die, I will revisit with you. You have a God who's with you every moment of every day. Psalm 139. The Christian life is not like a piece of cotton blowing around in the wind, being carried from one place to another with no definite purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for every Christian life. You never get down to the business of doing His will. You never get down to the business of this doctor was eight years of age and he saw the poverty all around him and he wasn't thinking about his own poverty. He was thinking about the poverty of the people around him. And as an eight-year-old child, he says, I'm going to be a doctor someday and I'm going to build a hospital in Barbados and I am going to spend my life serving the will of God by serving these who can give me nothing back except for the joy that I realize in serving Him. And she, being a teacher, teaching the children, but she's not thinking about her job as a teacher. She's not thinking about, are the students learning about science and math and geography? She looks at them and she sees the abuse, the bruises and the, and the scars and the sadness that comes forth from them. And she stops in the middle of the ball game and says, I have to do something more. 
you have to realize that God is real. When he's eight years of age, he's listening to a voice. It's the voice of God. When she's in the middle of teaching a class, she's hearing the voice of God. And she stops and says, here's what I must do. I was about nine years of age, and a buddy and I went to Island State Park there in Minnesota. We went there to go fishing, and my first time fishing wasn't a very good fisherman. After about 15 minutes, having not even a nibble, I said, there are no fish in this lake. Put down my fishing pole, right, Wayne? Put down my fishing pole. And went off into the woods, and my buddy said, where are you going? said, there's no fish in this lake. I'm going to go out into the woods and play. About ten minutes later, he's screaming, Paul, come back, help me. I've caught a fish. It was a big one. He said, grab that net, help me. And as soon as I got that fish in, then I picked up my pole and went back at it. I knew there were fish in the lake. Did you know that he's there? Do you know that God is there? Do you know that he cares? If you know there's fish in the lake, excuse me, if you know that God is there, and if he, you know that he cares deeply, when you hear his voice, what do you say? How could an eight-year-old say, I'm going to be a doctor someday, I'm going to build a hospital for these poor people? How can a teacher struggle with it for two years and they didn't say enough, handing in my resignation, I have to start this organization for abused children and abused youth? How do you do that? You believe that God is real. You believe his eye is on the sparrow. And you respond to the will. Is it easy? No. Look at Jesus. Is it easy? No. Look at Jesus. Why is he climbing the Mount of Transfiguration? Because the one who just preached, two and a half years earlier, the one who just preached, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. If you have food and clothing, you ought to be content. The one who said that, is now breaking out into a cold sweat. True man, true God. He's breaking out into a cold sweat. And Satan is already coming like he did at the start of his ministry. And he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, told you three years ago, use your power, turn stone into bread. You could feed every human being on the planet. You could heal every illness that ever came. And Jesus said inwardly. And if I do that, they'll live to their 40 or 60 or 80 or 90 years of age. If I do that, they'll have abundant life on this earth. And the moment they die, they're yours, Satan. I cannot save them. Isn't that what we've read for the last two weeks in the lessons? If for this life only... We have Christ. If for this life only we have Christ, 
we are to be pitied more than all men. The reason we have Christ is to live that abundant life like that doctor and that teacher, to live the abundant life for him on this earth. And the abundant life is not the clothes you wear, or the car you drive, or the size of your house. The abundant life is this. This dear lady said to me, when I read Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, 17 years ago, changed everything for me. I realized I wasn't living for myself any longer. I was living for him. Jesus could have used his power in that realm. But the moment Paul Strand died, or the moment any of you died, you would have nothing. You'd be lost. The will of God, as much as Jesus suffered when he knew he had to go to the cross, not my will, but thine be done. In the next verse in the Gospel of John, when he comes off that mountain, it says, He set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. It was time to go to the cross. It was time to do the ultimate will of God. Sixty seconds, ninety seconds. There is a second will that invades our life. It pertains to decisions we have to make. Is it the will of God that I continue the chemotherapy for this cancer? Or is it his will that I stop? I get this, I ask this question all the time. Is it God's will that I continue dialysis for the next four or five years? Or is it his will for me to stop? Is it his will for me to stop this job where I feel fairly comfortable and take a risk of looking at this job that has come across my path? Is it God's will that I do that? Is it God's will that we stop trying after seven years to have a baby? Is it God's will for that? Is it God's will that we adopt this child? Is it God's will that I keep sending my 21-year-old to rehab the heroin addiction that he has? Do I keep spending the money to send him to different places around this country? What is God's will? Once again, if you know there's fish in the lake, you fish. If you know that his eye is on the sparrow, and not one sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing it, you know that he cares deeply about you. Sometimes we get exasperated with people, <laughs> with our spouses or our friends or our children <laughs> or our teenagers. We sit and say to them, go and do whatever you want to do. I know you're not going to listen to me anyway, so just go and do whatever you want to do. That will never be God. That will never be God. Every decision you ever have to make on this earth, God is up there with his power, his love, and his wisdom. And he whispers to you or he shouts to you. He doesn't send Moses and Elijah. They're already here. Sometimes Connie will say, will you do me a favor? <laughs> I 
And I've learned to always ask the question, what's the favor? When God says, I want you to follow my will, and here it is. You trust him implicitly. And when you've prayed over a matter and he's made it clear, whether it's Ellenberg trying to decide whether he's going to stay here or go to Trinity there up in Michigan, whatever decision you have to make, you pray to God, you ask his will to be done, you ask him to give you the courage to follow through on that which he has placed in your mind and hearts. And if he doesn't do it immediately, then you wait. Psalm 27, 13, Psalm 46, 10. Then you wait because you know he's there. Closing word, King David had to wait 15 years from the time Samuel anointed him as king till he actually became king. 15 years he waited for the will of God to be done. And then the will was done. As we move now to Transfiguration Sunday, Ash Wednesday, and the different Sundays in Lent, God be with each of us. Pastor Schauer and I are preaching about the characters that are around the cross, the characters that are connected with the Passion. Each of them, each of them had to decide, what is the will of God? Shall I go against it? Or shall I stand for it? In his name, amen. Would you rise for a moment as we pray? Can we trust him? Ask the prodigal son. Can we trust him? Ask King David after he had sinned Bathsheba and Uriah. Can we trust him? Ask Abraham. Can we trust him? Ask Isaiah. Can we trust him? Ask Simon Peter. Ask the disciples. Can we trust him? And when that trust has grown to a great proportion, even if our faith is small, a grain of mustard seed, when we trust him, then the prodigal son returns to the father, and King David repents of his sin and continues on leading the people. And Simon Peter and the disciples are blessed at Pentecost and they become explosive elements for the kingdom of God. Can we trust him? And if we are seeking his will pertaining to a particular matter or circumstance in our life, can we trust him? And if we do, then our prayer takes on a different nature. And we, when we wake up in the morning, it is not the circumstance that is flooding our mind and heart. It is reality that this is a day that God has made and His will is for my good. Grant us your peace, Lord. Grant us the power to follow your will with our lives on this earth. In our Savior's name, amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.